We do have a handout for the evening. If you did not pick one up on your way in, if you'd slot up your hand, Brother Tim will bring you a handout for the evening. Just slip up your hand and he'll bring one up to you. If you'd like a handout to walk through tonight is our time together in Ecclesiastes. Has anybody uh, faced any sort of deep depression out of our study through uh, Ecclesiastes as it has a tendency to be a little on the negative side, right? That it's drawing out some of the struggles of life. But as we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think there is the underrated, we talked about this the first week, the genre of lament or struggle. And uh, it's an underrated portion of the Bible to sit down and read not just scriptures that you would aspire to, but Bible passages that you connect with. That the struggle actually connects with your struggle. The thoughts that may go through your mind connect with the thoughts that are in the Bible. And so I, we underestimate oftentimes the, the genre of lament. And so when we, when we struggle with something or we cry out uh, from our pain or struggle. And so in many ways, Ecclesiastes, while being very negative, also comes off with the struggles of life. We oftentimes can connect with what's written here. It makes sense to us. Because we've experienced some of these struggles that we find here in Ecclesiastes. So tonight, we'll actually focus a decent portion of our time on uh, chapter 5, just these few verses from 10 on, um, and then we'll circle around a couple of larger passages at the very end. But tonight we're going to talk about, in particular, he's already mentioned money, he's talked about some of the struggles you can have with money or material possessions or wealth, some of the temptation that brings. And then tonight what we'll do is turn that into focusing particularly on exactly what the struggle is with money. He, he just takes a deeper dive here in chapter 4, 5, and 6, really centered in 5. And so what I'd like to do is take the first part of our time and speak about the the negative impacts of loving money, and then the last half of our time, just the last few minutes, actually what are some, some things that help guard against that love of money? And then in particular, just as Christians, I want to take a moment to step outside of the book and think just how should you approach money? How should you think about it? So I'm going to end there. Uh, so if that may be the most useful part, so just hang with me as we build to it. But in many ways, our hearts are prone to love or to be drawn to money. In fact, the Bible doesn't in and of itself declare money or riches bad. It will say, as in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? The, the, the worship of it, the idolatry of material possessions, and the fact that we live uh, in you know, the most prosperous society in all of history, right? I mean, we are living in an era where we have all kinds of options and money and wealth at our fingertips. And in fact, our, our culture has a sense of lifting up this drive for more and more wealth. There, there is a, a, an idolatry built in the culture that says more and more wealth is always a good thing. 
It should be a goal, success. Now, I don't want to say success or striving for good things is always bad, but mixed in there is this love of money that gets drawn into our hearts. Now, you typically, for me, what I like to think of is anybody who has more money than me is rich, and anybody who has less money than me is poor. You know, it's kind of, you think, oh, they don't have that much. So whatever the standard of rich or poor, the line always is drawn with you. In fact, for those of you who have maybe made some sort of mobility change in life, who maybe at one point in time, uh, like for example, when I was young, there was a period of time when I was in elementary school, uh, my dad was uh, managed a maintenance department. The fact is he was a supervisor at, we've talked about this before, Brother Joe, my dad was a supervisor at Sears in the shipping department in Greensboro. So that was my dad's job. At the time, my mom went back to school to be a teacher while my sister was in college. So we had that, my dad's income strapped with two college, uh, two people in college. And I'll say, when I was in third, fourth, fifth grade, we just didn't, we just didn't have anything. I mean, you want to go, go to the store, you want to go, we just didn't do anything. We didn't go out to eat. We just didn't have any money. And so you, if you've ever been at this point in life, you think at that point, anybody that had more than you was rich, but you've even had the chance, if you've made any sort of change where you've either had more money, because when my mom went back to work, all of a sudden she got out of college, my sister got out of college, my mom went to school, all of a sudden we had all this money, life changed, and so then all of a sudden my line moved, right? <laughs> it's relative. In fact, if you look at Americans, right, I was just, I pulled a few stats today, I thought this would be helpful. Um, for our own, even if you feel like in America, the vast majority of all Americans live in the top 10% of the world's wealth. So of all, if you want to just say comparatively to the world, 90% of the world, the vast majority of Americans live in this um, top tier. In fact, I saw one number when I was looking, it said something like, the, if you want to be in the top 1% of wealth in the world, you're the average yearly salary was something like $32,000 a year to be in the top 1% of the world. Probably if you're an American, you make $32,000 a year, you don't feel like you are mega rich. But if you look at the entire world, that would be a top 1% salary. It's, there was another uh, stat given on there by Compassion International, which serves the poor, that says uh, 1 in 10 people, or 10% of the world, lives on $1.90 per day. I totaled that up, for those of you who are math geniuses, I used a calculator. It's $693.50. So less than $700 a year. Think about how $700, I know you're not, we're not mega rich in here, but think about how $700 does move through your hands in some regard. Uh, for the world, that is an entire year's worth of living for one out of every 10 people. So saying all that, um, it's tough to say what is wealthy and what is poor. You say, well, if, I, if, I, if somebody had this much wealth, they should just give it all away. Well, well, that probably would include all of us. If the world looked at us, right? We're at the top of the list. So, so there's a sense of there is this generosity that should be called. So what do you do when you, when you sit here and say, how, how much money, how do I approach money? Should I just feel guilty for having it all? How do Christians 
Strong. And then in America, with all the money that you have and striving for success and promotions and jobs, what are some of the dangers you face? So here's what I like to do. We'll start with, in your heart, let's diagnose from Ecclesiastes 5 some warnings about pursuing satisfaction in money. Because what we really should look at is not so much amounts, but we should look at what our heart does with it. And then when our heart changes, the other stuff works itself out. So let's first look at some things that are warnings about uh, money. So let's look at the first one there. You've got the, you've got the bullet point and we've got the scripture. I mean, man, we, my handout is top notch tonight for you, right? It's right there. You don't have to do much. All right, so, so for chapter 5, verse 10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So the first danger or warning is that you will never have enough. Again, notice the phrase, not he who has money, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There is a danger in the love of money and expecting it, it to lead to some sort of ultimate satisfaction in life. Sin or money or wealth or any sort of worldly idol never satisfies. It always leaves you wanting more. So think about it. If you've had any, I mentioned this earlier, any sort of mobility in life, you might have thought, if I just had, and fill in the blank, house, car, bank account, whatever thing you would have put out, there was a point in time in your life, if I just had blank, then I would be satisfied with that. Can you think back to long enough where you would remember a time you would set a parameter and then somehow when that particular thing was provided by the Lord, wasn't enough. You could still think of something more you would like to have with it. Anybody relate to this at all? Something more that you would add on. What you would have thought would have satisfied, there's always more to think of. Whether it's a... a retirement plan or a car or a house or whatever it might be, you can always look over the fence and say, it'd be nice to have that one too, right? There's always somebody with more than you. And so if you, if you believe just what I, just a little bit more, that will be enough, it always leaves you wanting more. You know, I have this little dangerous thing I like to do. I, I do, one of the things that I do enjoy in life is ice cream. I think it's probably one of the great uh, modern marvels that's great about living in this age is the fact we all have ice cream. I can't think of an era where you couldn't have had ice cream every day. Uh, I just, I mean, I, if I can have a snack at night, ice cream's better than cake or pie or any other sweet that you can have. So um, I have to limit sometimes, you know, if there's a lot of options in, in the freezer. I like, I can just eat a bowl of ice cream every night. Be a good thing. So I, I've convinced myself of not getting a bowl, and just as a warning, if you come over to my house, I don't do this with all the tubs of ice cream, but I'll get a spoon, and I'll get the tub of ice cream out, and I'll think just one bite, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what you think, just one bite of ice cream. 
it's a clean spoon when I start, I'm not going to take a second bite. Then you're like, well, that bite wasn't very big. I should get another one. Then by the time I'm done, I actually think because I didn't measure it in the bowl, I probably end up eating more than I started with. And you know, by that point, it's melted around the edges. Anyway, nobody can relate, I'm sure. But I, I guess to me, the point is, uh, there's a bit of, in my mind, I set up just one, one bite of ice cream, I'll be satisfied. But there's a sense of, okay, I have that one, I think, okay, what about one more, one more, one more. That's the way that wealth and money, if it becomes a thing that you love or idolize, you always find yourself one more, one more, one more. So if we're going to stop and just do a check tonight uh, for your heart and where you're at, uh, it, do you find yourself right now loving some sort of material possession or wealth or something? Is there something right now you're doing one more, one more, one more? And you're just thinking, if I just get this, 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 and this. I'm, I'm not, not against the goal. What I am against is saying that that will be your satisfaction. That life will be happy if I can do blank. That's not the gospel, and that's not the point. So the reverse of this, to jump to a little bit of it, we'll talk about this more. I just want to jump to it now, is contentment. Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content in all circumstances, whether in hunger or need. He, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. So there's a level of contentedness that you need to have with your possessions. You'll never have enough. Okay, let's do another one. Most of us won't have this problem in life. Uh, but if you have enough money, the second one is you'll attract leeches. <laughs> Some of us do, I guess. All right, verse 11. When goods increase... They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So when you have quite a bit of money, there's always other people that want to partake of it. Sometimes people think, if I just had a lot of money, um, then it'd be easier for me. But in fact, sometimes with money comes people that would expect you to give them that money. There's a burden to possessing that. Many times you see it, uh, I'm going to talk more about this in a second and mention it in the book, but um, one of the fascinating things to me to watch is, is the plight of many of the professional athletes who all of a sudden go from either very little money and then all of a sudden multiple millions of dollars, and then what do they do with it then? And uh, there's even books written about it. There's a whole ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called Broke about athletes who will get all this money, and then by the time they're out of, you know, out of the, their career, uh, said one of the, what I looked up today, said 60% of former NBA players are broke within five years of retirement. Um, and by the time uh, NFL players have been retired for two years, 78% of them have gone bankrupt uh, or some form. So now I think there's measures that they, each of these leagues have done to help counteract this. And I'm by no means... Uh, bashing any of these young men, I think it's just a, it's, it's a lot to handle. It's my point. And I think they all of a sudden handle all this money, and then there's everybody standing around them that has their hand out, and then you find people just taking. There's a, I think in the book it mentioned at one time one guy was paying for 60 different cell phone plans, and he only had one cell phone himself. Right? He's paying for everybody else's stuff. So, so in other words, the more you have, it's not that the simpler your life gets, more complicated it can be to what to do with the money. It will change the relationships you have. As you, yep, people that win the lottery are the same way. 
Here's another one here for you. You'll, you'll not sleep well. This is a good one to remind for you, everybody, when you get up tomorrow morning real early and go off to work and the toil of work, and sometimes you think, man, I just would like to sleep in. Listen to verse 12 here. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, God has designed us as people to work. We're made to do something. And so there's something very satisfactory, something very helpful to the soul, and I think the point here is that after a long day's work, there's something very sweet about good rest. Something good about being tired and falling asleep. The reverse of that is at some point loving money so much that you quit any sort of work. The point here is the person who has a full stomach, the rich will not sleep. In other words, they, they stop work. There, there's a sense even here of a person, if they have so much wealth, they stay up all night worrying about the money. It keeps them up. But I would even say there's a sense of talking about the laborer, the one who's tired, he sleeps well, the other one's a full stomach who has not done work, doesn't rest very well. Now let me give an example from my life. I don't know if you feel this way. Um, but I feel this way at the end of a vacation or I feel this way uh, after a few snow days. I don't know if you feel this or not, but the first few minutes of a snow day, I'm kind of excited about having a few minutes just to relax at the house. But the last few minutes after the, we've not been able to go out, I'm stuck in my house, the kids are driving me crazy, I'm much more appreciative of my wife, all those things are going on, and then, but, but when I'm starting to just sit around the house, I start to get restless. There's even a sense at which my, I can't even rest well when I'm not working hard. So there is a good, right thing about working hard and resting well. So, with a love or pursuit of money, apart from a pursuit of other things, you won't sleep well. That's the warning. Verse 13, you'll hurt yourself. Here's what he means. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. In a sense here, to drive it down a little bit further, that the, the money became such an idol, it actually hurt the person. I think the, the most natural way I might be able to drive this to application could be uh, being a workaholic. That work becomes such an idol, money, possessions, attaining and striving for more, that you used to work so hard at that, you actually begin to destroy and hurt your own physical body, and the people that are around you. In other words, you destroy yourself and your relationships. You hurt yourself because of your love and pursuit of wealth. The one I thought of earlier, and I don't know how, I think at least this was in my mind. I remember years ago, there's, a, there's an old movie called The Family Man. It was about a guy who... Um, 
wanted to live like a world. He had, he had this moment in college where he had this wife, and he was going off to make a whole lot of money. He was going off to make all the money. He uh, had this choice to either stay with his girlfriend and get married to her or to go off and have this big, successful career. He goes off into the big, successful career. He's a single man, lives kind of a lonely life, but he's super successful. Well, then all of a sudden one day, you know, the movie magic, the movies, something happens, and he wakes up, and he's at the home of where he would have been if he would have stayed with his wife. He doesn't have near the money, stayed with his girlfriend, doesn't have near the money he did if he has the kids and has the relationships, has this family. And so for him is this moment of like great wealth or these relationships or whatever it might be. Here's my point, is that a love of money and a drive of pursuit can create so much hurt either in the relationships you have or you personally. He's warning against a love of money creating hurt for the individual. Here's another one. Uh, you'll never truly be secure. And those riches were lost. So, so these riches that provide such hurt, notice what it says, they were lost in a bad venture. This is the danger here. They could disappear, right? And not only when it disappear, look how bad shape this guy is in. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So because he put all of his stability and life on wealth, the minute that, when money does this, right, bad economies, bad investments, jobs go away, there's, there's instability, the minute that falls out, there's nothing else for this person to fall back on. And so bad at this moment, this guy's got a family to provide for. So, so in other words, you can't trust money. That's why you can't make it your idol and be something you love, because it will always fail you. It will end in hurt, and on the other side, you can't truly be secure with it. It can provide a false sense of security. I mean, money can do a lot of things for you, but they can be false. They're not real. Here's another one. You'll leave it behind. You'll leave it behind. So verse um, 15 and 16, look what it said. And he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again. Naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? So whatever value you think money you have, you couldn't have been bring it with you, and it's certainly not going to leave with you. The old verbiage of the trailer hitch on the hearse, right? There, there's nothing going with you, right? You can't take it. And so you see these people, sometimes you've seen it in all of history, that will have millions and billions of dollars and then pass away, and it's there. It's not, they don't take it. Does it go with them? So this is the warning of wealth is it has only this period of time to exist. So if you pursue it, you're investing in something you can't keep. A few years ago, um, through a gift of a friend, I was able to go, I'm, I like NASCAR fairly well, so I went to a NASCAR race uh, up at the 
was at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And one of the things, I've been through different races, and they put us up in the, this, this particular gift I was given was up in the, in the like indoor suites where they're like, you can look through the glass. Now it's not like the one where there's like a big buffet behind you and you're living large. This is the one that it's, you're not out in the open, but there's a bunch of seats indoor if you've ever been to it. And so you're sitting there and they've got the glass up so it's not so loud, but you're sitting in a nice cushion seat watching a NASCAR race, which is nice. And um, when we went, this, uh, the, whatever company it was sponsoring, uh, me and my friend to go, they gave us these, these dollars that were like speedway bucks because there was a big concession stand back behind us. And so they gave us this money for speedway bucks. Now, what was fascinating is they gave us like, I forget what it was. It was something like 60 or $80 a person. Well, they did this because they thought that uh, I would drink, which I don't. So the problem comes, alcohol is expensive. It adds up after a while. I can only buy so many Dr. Peppers. And so I went in there and I bought like a cheesesteak and a Dr. Pepper and I was down $20. And here I was with these Speedway bucks and I had nothing else. I mean, there was no other place to spend it, right? I, I'd run out of stuff to buy. And here's my point, is they had given me all this money, but at the end of the night, I walked out and it was just paper, right? It was, there was nothing else I could do, so I'm going in there trying to buy every little thing I can find. But the point was, was to say that there's one day in which whatever money we think we have here is of great value, it will one day when we walk out of this world, it'll just be worth nothing. So, so it's just here. So to the pause here, I want to start making a little bit of a turn because then we'll come back around to the last warning. But before I jump to it, I do want to mention a verse to you because this is a good use of thinking of possessions. Oftentimes we think of greed. I'm going to flip this for you for a second. We think greed, and follow with me, is always a bad thing. I think we're greedy for the wrong thing. Let me read Jesus to you. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That's what we're talking about. Things that will be stolen, things that are unstable, and things that will fade and wear out. So Jesus didn't say, don't value treasure. He says, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the connection. Heart decides treasure. But ultimately, you are to be greedy for heavenly treasures, is my point. So all that drive and success and desire to attain and build things up, you ought to be desiring to build things up that are valuable for all eternity. So invest in the souls of people that one, one, one day when you stand in heaven and see that person now has professed faith in Christ, or this is another person I've invested my life into, or this is another person I served and cared for, do that so that when you stand in heaven, say, that's where I invested my treasure. So you want to be rich in heaven. My point is to say, the desire to succeed and to do well and to expand that you have in your heart, like you want to you get after it, you want to be a success. The pro that's not bad. The problem is you have just placed it on the wrong thing. 
It's on this unstable worldly wealth that we're being warned, warned about here in Ecclesiastes. What I'm saying, Jesus turns it over and says, look for heavenly treasures. Here's the next warning. The last one before we make a turn. Uh, you'll be a miserable person. That's a nice part of it, right? Notice verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. And that's no good, right? Lonely. So, so notice how when your life is spent finding satisfaction in money, first verse, you'll never have enough. And the last verse, you'll have some terrible stuff. Like it, it's this kind of bookended here idea of the first one is you, you'll be striving, never satisfied. And in fact, you'll be beyond unsatisfied. You're going to live a miserable life. It leads to a terrible place. Because you are asking, follow with me here, money, possessions, wealth, to do something it can't do. It's like sitting down and having a dinner with a bunch of candy and ice cream and getting up and thinking, man, I don't know why I don't have a lot. I don't feel great. Because it's not meant to give you sustenance and genuine long-term energy. You, you need some meat and potatoes. You need something to carry you through. You, you, can't, you can't live off that. So you're taking money and wealth and these type of things. They're not meant to bring you satisfaction. It's not what they're supposed to do. They lead to this miserable existence. So there's a couple of what he gives here are antidotes for money. So against you being satisfied in money, these are things that serve as antidotes. So just two passages here. I'll try to work through them quickly. I'm not going to break them down like I did this section. But I'd like to work through these two fairly quickly. The first antidote is is to have meaningful relationships. Look what he says in verse 7 through 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. So, so notice the phrases there. I saw one person who has no other by himself, and then he presses it there, for whom this person doesn't have somebody that brings their view of wealth back down. They're just thinking of themselves. But notice verse 9, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here's just the simple point I want to draw from this, is that he's saying the person who is alone by themselves does not have the relationship to draw them out of this. It is helpful to have people around you. So I want to say, I just want to mention two, two types of relationships. The first one are just family and friends that help draw you out of this materialistic life. It just helps to have people around you that you need to give and care for to so you don't get wrapped up in so much wealth for yourself. That's a good, just, just providing and taking care of people around you, whatever you need to do, however you do that, 
it helps giving it away, caring for other people. The other uh, relationship I'll just point you to is the relationship you have with the Lord himself. Those two will provide an antidote to this love of money. If you love God and you love people, you won't love money. Simple commands of Jesus. All right, so I'm not going to read the, this entire next passage. If you'd like to go back and read it all, you're welcome to. But I'd like to talk about um, contentment and joy in what God has given you. Is it warm in here to y'all tonight? Some of you who are always cold, you're probably loving it. There's a few of you guys who think this is the best night ever. It's warm. All right, so... Uh, let's talk about contentment and joy in what God has given you. And in particular, this is what I mentioned earlier, learning to be content with what the Lord has provided. Notice this phrase here in verse 18 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. And there's just a short phrase I want to draw out. For this is his lot. There's a sense at which the Lord has granted you a lot or something that he has sovereignly done for you. You know, he has generally put you a place in life. Look at verse 19. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy him and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Just to pause here and to point that, that accepting your lot is the idea of being content with the place in life the Lord has put you. And God has blessed us in different regards and in different places and in different ways. And we need to learn to be content with what the Lord has given us. And so I think what we have here is learning to have contentment and joy in these circumstances. That's where I point you to, for the lack of time, I won't take you there, but a Philippians 4, where Paul just talks about having need and hunger and struggle. And he says, I have learned to be content in all the things God has given me. And that's when he says, I can do all things through Christ. Not some Superman verse, but in this regard, he's learned to be content in no matter what the situation. So that's the idea of contentment. The last one here uh, I want to draw you to, and this one's just kind of the subtle. It's just real small. If you don't look real hard, um, you might miss it. But I do want to just, this is the Jesus connection point we'll give to it all. Verses 10 to 12. So if you skip through that next uh, section there, I want to do verses 10 to 12 and then give just a couple quick practical things at the end. Uh, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and then he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the disadvantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So these first few words here ring with the first few uh, the first couple chapters, the first few words of the Bible. Notice that whatever has come has already been named. Do you hear where they named early in the Bible? It is known what man or Adam is. It's this idea of the dust. So there's a sense of, even here we're ringing back to 
the garden. And there's a sense at which there is something glorious at the beginning before the fall. And there is something glorious at the very end after the fall. But in the middle, we live in this shadow, as the text says, of a moment. And so in this middle, we have to know what do we do with wealth and possessions. So let me give you, I just have, I didn't put these in your notes. I just want to encourage you with three simple things I think a Christian ought to think about money. There could be ten, I don't know. These were just three I thought of at the end of all this that may be helpful encouragement to you. Um, Luke chapter 16 talks about an unrighteous steward. I'm not going to read it, but it talks about how there's, there's this guy and he's about to lose his job from his manager and he realizes he's about to lose his job and he says, hey, what I'm going to do is take all the different people that owe him some money, go cut all that in half, and then when I get fired, I got a bunch of friends who will go hire me. Now, Jesus makes that guy the model, which this is a good idea for parables here. Sometimes Jesus can take a parable that may not always apply in every area and use it to, to show us something. And when it's all said and done, Jesus says, look at that guy. He's crooked. He was, got fired from his job, but that guy knows how to take money and use it for his worldly gain. And at the very end, he says, you, Christians, you, followers of me, ought to use your money for the gospel. So if that crooked guy knows how to use it that way, you should know how to use your possessions and your wealth for the gospel and for the kingdom. And so we should look at our money as a means and a possession to use for the gospel and for the glory of God. He has blessed you with what you have, and your heart ought to be, how can I use it for that purpose? So again, the shift is not a lover of money, a lover of God, and then under that, is this treasure of using your money for the gospel. So that's the first way you ought to look at your money. How can I use it for the gospel? Just to ask that question. How am I using it for the kingdom? The second one, I've already said this earlier, but you should focus on storing heavenly treasure. How is it that you're building up worth in heaven? What is it if you were to say, these are the eternal things in life, that I invest my life into. These are how I'm building up things that will last forever. How is my investment placed there? My time, my energy. The third one I would say, and this is a, I don't know how to, I'm trying, I think it's in the Bible, I think it's even here. He speaks a lot about enjoying uh, God's creation I think there is something genuine with seeing the glory of God in his creation by enjoying what he's made. There ought to be a sense when you sit down and eat a good steak and you say, man, this is really good, that your heart ought to go because my God and my creator is really good. There's a sense at which the glory of creation ought to bring us to the glory of the creator. And so, it's not wrong to enjoy things. I would say it's wrong to enjoy things apart from God. So, so this is in the mix of it all. With all the possessions you have and all the things God has blessed you, there can be this kind of 
just outright, I, it's just so wrong for me to ever enjoy anything material. And why in the world would God ever be okay with it? I just need to be a person that just gives up everything and only thinks of everything spiritual. I think God has created a creation for us that brings great enjoyment that ought to lead to worship of him because of the greatness of what we enjoy. So, so just... All of those things kind of help balance. That's why there's not some legalistic standard that you have to give away this and not this. You, you have to keep this or not that. The, the, the thing you really ought to have to diagnose, it goes back to Jesus' point, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the real question is, where's your heart? Is it genuinely placed on pursuing God, or is it running the danger of some of these things that Ecclesiastes talked about tonight. Pursuing the satisfaction for your life in money. And Ecclesiastes says, that's meaningless. There's no point. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess the great temptation to be drawn to value the things of this world. Lord, I pray that you would give us such a burden and desire and a passion for our lives to, to use them, to, to use the possessions you've given us for your glory. I pray you'd give us such a drive and a desire to do that, that, Lord, you would turn our hearts towards you so that we would make natural decisions with our stuff. We would naturally begin to see them as, as gifts from you that need to be used for your glory. Lord, I pray that every time we enjoy some part of life and creation, Lord, I pray it would draw up worship from our heart to appreciate and to praise you for how good you are. Help us to see the greatness of the Creator in your creation. Lord, I pray also for, um, for us that, for those in this room and just all of us that probably could relate to one of those warnings, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the futility and the meaninglessness of stuff. Lord, let us see the fleeting nature and the vapor that it is. Help us to not place our desires and our satisfaction and our hope in some sort of thing. Lord, help us to place it in you. And Lord, if we are on that path, turn our hearts so that we don't end up in putting our trust in something that will not, will not succeed in fulfilling it. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the great hope in allowing us to be a part of things of eternal value. And I pray when we stand there before you one day, we'll see that our hearts have lived lives that have been spent building and laying up heavenly treasure. Lord, give us a view of that. Help us to value it with all we have. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.